The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. What are the last four words of the Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil. Why did Jesus intentionally place those words of deliverance at the end of a prayer? Why not end the prayer with, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes, amen. The Lord's prayer ends with a dependent people asking for the Lord to deliver them from evil. Why did he put it at the end? This week I was reading a study about pain. And in the study, they measured people's experiences of pain while a painful procedure was going on. So while you were undergoing something painful, they had you measure your degree of pain. And people were to rank 1 to 10. How much does this hurt while it's going on? And then at the end of the study, after the procedure was over, they asked people to give a rating of how painful they felt the procedure was looking back. And in the study, they learned there's a stark difference between the experiencing self, the person actively going through the pain, and then the remembering self, the same person recalling or looking back over the pain. And typically, what they would find is that the person would rank the pain higher during the experience, right, and considerably lower afterwards as they remembered it. That makes sense. Mamas, mamas, yeah, you go through horrible labor pains. But after that little baby is in your arms, this amnesia sets in. Your remembering self doesn't even remember the pain as much. That is... Unless the ending of the procedure was really bad. Then the rankings between the experiencing self and the remembering self are identical. It hurt during the pain, and if it ended bad, man, it even hurts to think about it afterwards. This is what's at the heart of trauma and PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder happens when someone experiences something incredibly painful, but at the end of the story appears to have zero resolution or deliverance or positive outcome to the trauma that happened to them. What is needed for a soldier to have gone through painful battle after losing friend after friend, all of their buddies, is to hold in their hands a newspaper article that says, Victory! Or when a victim of a violent assault, what they need to hear is that their attacker has gone to jail or is dead or has had justice served upon them. If there is no deliver us from evil at the end of the story, then what in the world is the motivation to keep going? Today's passage in Acts chapter 12 has actually confused some theologians and historians. Some have proposed that you don't need Acts chapter 12 for Luke to communicate what it was that he was communicating in the book. It's not necessary. So why did Luke put it in the middle of Acts? What is his purpose? 
in showing in this whole book how the gospel of Jesus goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Why is Acts chapter 12 here? I think it's here to show us traumatized people. That in the middle of painful circumstances, as we're stuck in the middle of this book, between the already and the not yet, to remember the ending is good. To remember this. The Lord answers the prayers of his people. So we must earnestly ask him to deliver us from evil. The Lord answers the prayers of his people, so we must earnestly ask him to deliver us from evil. Like we did last week, I didn't read the whole passage at the beginning. We're going to read through it in chunks. And we're going to start with verses 1 to 5, which helps set the scene of what's going on right now for the church. Before I read these verses, I, I want you to imagine if this were where all of us were at All Saints in the middle of the story. Can you imagine? What if, what if this, verses 1 to 5, was our present reality, okay? Verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So if this is a newly formed church, look at the circumstances surrounding it. Herod, who is the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who took out all of those little baby boys during Jesus' time for fear that they would take his throne, guess what? His grandson is following his lead. He's squashing any power that is threatening to him. And that power is seeming to come from the church. So if we were this church right now, where Axe is, many of you would have walked through the door with black eyes and busted limbs coming to sit down to worship. Ben, one of our elders, he's just been beheaded. And uh, your pastor is sitting across the highway in solitary confinement at the reformatory. That's where we are. And this scheme for Herod of squashing the power of the church is working. It seems. The Jews, they're applauding him, verse 3 tells us. And he's going to just wait until after the Passover feast, which again is just to make the, keep the Jews happy, to make sure Peter's head is going to roll when it's all over. So Peter's just bound to die. It's just a matter of time. So Luke wants us to start by seeing how bleak this situation is for the church. See how helpless and powerless these followers of Jesus are. See the pain they're all experiencing as one of Jesus's first and one of his best friends has been executed and another one is just days away from the same fate. See how hopeless and helpless this situation is. So what's the only thing this church knows to do? Verse 5. Pray. Earnestly pray. And that expression in verse 5, earnest prayer, it's the same description 
that's used for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's sweating blood, when he's abandoned by all his friends, when he's saying, not my will but yours be done, but man, take this cup away from me. That's what earnest prayer is. It's power for the powerless. It's help for the helpless. I just want to unpack three points about earnest prayer for us to understand according to these first few verses. Earnest prayer is first, help against oppressors. In this case, it's Herod who in verse 1 is laying violent hands on God's people. But throughout the Bible, oppressors might take the form of a pharaoh or an enemy or a demon or a dictator or even ourselves as an oppressor. Who are your oppressors right now? And then earnest prayer is pleading God's will, not my own, be done. You see this in verse 2. Friends, James is dead. Peter is not. So if you're, if you're superstitious on prayer, you'd probably believe, think, oh, maybe they didn't pray for James because he's dead, but Peter's still alive. No, that's not what's going on. James is dead because of God's will. And Peter is alive because of God's will. When answer to earnest prayer comes, the story doesn't always follow our neat and tidy plans and timelines. God does answer prayer, Tim Keller puts it. But he answers it according to what we ask or what we would ask if we knew everything God knew. God answers every prayer. Why James was the first to die, we don't know. But we do know it's part of God's plan and will. As Matthew 20, Jesus promised James, as, after he insisted to get the best seat at the table, he said to James, no, you're going to drink my bitter cup. And here it is. Prophecy happening. Not James's will, but God's was done. Where are you earnestly praying? Like in the garden, where are you not wanting to go? but God is calling you. Or, where are you wanting to stay, but God is calling you to move? Earnest prayer, pleading for his will, not our own be done. And the last thing about earnest prayer is that it's pleading for a repair of broken justice systems. Verses 3 and 4 are showing us that Herod and the Jews are in cahoots with one another. They're both benefiting from one another's power positions. Friends, I think you saw this in our political sphere between evangelicals and republicans sometimes you see that these power positions are going they're both benefiting from one another's power positions and they're unwilling to give that up especially to this ragtag group of jesus followers herod is believing that force intimidation confinement systematic murder will keep this people from doing anything and the people the church are praying Make right what's wrong with this system. What broken systems right now are in your prayers right now that the Lord would make right what's wrong? Powerless people of God, we pray earnestly because we know the only power able to accomplish anything comes from God. Friends, prayer is not the power or the solution. God is. So when we pray, we're calling upon his power. It's not our prayers. It's him that we're calling upon. And God answers the prayers of his people. He answered it in Moses delivering slaves from Egypt. He answered it in Jesus delivering slaves from sin and death. 
I remember when my friend who lived across the street from us, her name was Stacy, I remember when she died, I was about 17 years old, and I was a new believer in Jesus. And Stacy and her family, the day after Christmas, were driving to visit their grandmother, just still breaks my heart, visiting their grandmother in the nursing home when a truck slipped on ice across a two-lane highway and killed Stacy and both her older brother and her younger sibling, sister instantly. And I remember hearing the news and looking at their house across the street from us. And the only thing I knew to do in that moment was just drop to my knees and pray. Because in that moment, I was like helpless to do anything and powerless to change anything. And I just knelt there. I didn't even know what to say. I just prayed. Where is God revealing to you your helplessness, your powerlessness? There is the perfect situation to earnestly pray. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Where does the power to conquer enemies, to do God's will, and to repair broken systems come from? Not from me, from Jesus alone. To the praying church at the time, it may have felt like an exercise in futility to pray. I couldn't, Stacy wasn't going to come back to life. She wasn't going to be resurrected. So it felt like an, maybe an exercise in futility, but they still earnestly prayed. And the cool thing about chapter 12 is in the remaining verses of this chapter, God shows them and Luke reveals to them the complete opposite of futility. We see release. We see the prayer, deliver us from evil, answered. How do we see the Lord delivering his people from evil? First thing we see is God doing for us what we can't do ourselves. Look at verses 6 to 11 with me. Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to, came to himself, he said, I am now sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Imagine trying to escape from this prison situation. On your own abilities. Okay? Herod's ordered four squads, verse 4 tells us, to guard Peter. Four squads. One squad is made up of four soldiers. Two are going to be chained to you, and two are going to stand guard at the door. That's one squad. But Herod orders four squads, which means 16 soldiers have an eye on you. You're chained to two CrossFit specimens, okay? With 14 more men surrounding you. 
It's like that scene in one of the Marvel movies when Captain America, he's trapped in a crowded elevator and he's surrounded by like 16 men in black. This is where I struggle with Marvel. There's no possible way on earth this guy could get out of that elevator alive. But he does. By his own brute strength and by his own powerful shield. But look what gets Peter out of this prison situation. Is it the alertness of his spidey senses? No. Verse 7 tells us he has to be kicked awake. Get up, Peter. Is it his Hulk-like ability to break the chains? No. The chains, they just fall off. It is, is it his physique or his Iron Man suit that gets him out? No. He has to be reminded, put on your clothes, put on your cloak, get your shoes on. Is it his navigational GPS system in his mind that he knows how the the whole prison is set up and the the route to get out? No, he has to follow the angel's lead as he's half asleep. He doesn't even know, verse 9 tells us, if what's happening to him is a dream. You see that stage that Peter's going through between sleep and consciousness when you're half out of it. I mean, Ashley at the Y has to see me wander into the Y at 5 a.m. and wonder, do I need to help Chad into the locker room? Because I'm half asleep. That's where Peter is. And he's led by the messenger to walk past the first gate of maybe eight guards and then another gate of maybe another eight guards. There's no fight scene here. There's no shield bashing these guards to pieces. And then the final gate, the one leading into the city, is opened of its own accord. I love that. The gate almost becomes like a person in the instance. A person just bowing to the messenger of God, saying, after you, most holy one. To the point where Peter finds himself standing on one street, verse 10 says, which can be translated as the narrow way. This is gospel deliverance from evil. It's not up to you. It's not up to me, and it never was. When Peter finally rubs the sleep out of his eyes, what does he conclude? Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his messenger and rescued me from death. He is sure, not because he did it, but certain because only God could do this. We earnestly pray, deliver us from evil because we can't deliver ourselves. It would be like one author writes in Delivering Ourselves, trying to wash orange paint off of ourselves with what? With orange paint. It's trying to escape from the waters of sin by climbing up a water ladder. We can't do it. On our own, we are powerless against evil because all of us, without Christ, friends, are evil. We are immoral, we are wicked. But God, in Christ, the messenger, offers to do for us what we can't do ourselves. Be pure, be holy, be right, be righteous. Christ is our rescuer who unlocks chains and opens gates for us. Christ is our redeemer who pays our hell-bound prison bail with his blood. He lets us out. He delivers us from evil by doing what we cannot do. And secondly, he delivers us from evil by giving to us what seems too good to be true. Look at verses 12 to 17 of the story. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, 
where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. What's funny about this passage is what happens when the church's earnest prayers are answered? You'd think there would just be overwhelming joy and gratitude, but instead, what do you see? Unbelief. I love how Rhoda leaves Peter standing at the door. It's such a funny scene. She hears his voice, and her mind is blown away. Much like the women coming to the disciples to say that Jesus was alive, they treat her like she's nuts. There's no way, little delusional Rhoda Rose, that Peter's at the door. And it just goes back and forth. He's out there. No, he's not. He's out there. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. We have to appreciate, friends, how much of a powerless and depressing circumstance this church was under. As much as they prayed it so, they didn't believe there was any way Peter was getting out alive. And here he was. A gift from God of a man they thought for sure dead. He's now alive. Thus, the emotional, loud reaction which required Peter's hands to settle things down. What seemed impossible was possible because it was the Lord's doing, he said. And he says, share the message with James, the brother of Jesus. Not the one who died, but the brother of Jesus, who's now a pillar of the church. The same James who thought his brother Jesus was once a crazy man has now seen his brother raised from the dead and is now serving the church. Tell him and tell the other brothers. You see these kind of reactions, these hysterical reactions, often when like military folks come back from their deployment and surprise their family. Do you ever see the video of like a dad wrapped in a big box under the Christmas tree and the kids open the box and they see their dad and they just go crazy. Peter wants them to hear along with the rest of the church that the Lord answers impossible prayers. That the Lord deeply cares and responds to your impossible circumstances. Traumatized ones who don't know the end of the story like the church was right now hear Peter's voice and hear his knock at the door and believe the resurrection from the dead is true. May you maybe have yet to hear that knock of resurrection in your circumstance. But look at this situation as proof positive that the Lord hears your prayers and will, with certainty, respond in a fashion far better, far more unbelievable than your prayers have prayed. Ask earnestly to see Jesus show up in places you wouldn't expect or even believe him to be, like in a tax collector's home or in a closed-off place in your heart. 
He delivers us from evil by doing what we cannot do. He delivers us from evil by giving to us what seems too good to be true. And finally, he delivers us from evil by ending the story far better than it started. Look with me at the final verses of Acts 12. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But... The word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Herod, the man who began with all of the power, even power to order a man to death at the beginning of chapter 12, is the man who ends up dead. One commentator writes, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. And it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and establish his own in their place. Herod is all about power plays using people to meet his own end. And when they didn't, he had them executed. And the people of Tyre and Sidon are scared of Herod because if he's not happy with them, he's going to make them pay by starving them to death during a famine. So what do they do? They humiliate themselves and they bow down before his prideful display of power. Oh, Herod, please help us. Oh, Herod, please help us. And it's funny because history actually chronicles this situation. What happened is Herod was gathered at this place, at this uh, theater, if you will, and the sun was shining in such a way that it, it reflected upon his robes such that he was glowing in the daylight, and people were saying, he's a god, not a man. And it's chronicled outside of Acts that he dropped to the ground in gut-wrenching pain. The glory of people cannot be the end of the story. Good news. God will not allow self-centered, prideful, power-hungry people to be the end of his story. And so Herod presents for us a contrast between him and Christ. God will allow the glory of Christ to be the end of the story. The glory of Christ doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
the glory of Christ being perfect, being willing to pay for us, being willing to die for our deaths. That's the glory of God, not Herod's power play. Jesus' service to us. And it leads to an almost unbelievable ending. He's alive. He's alive. He's not in the tomb anymore. And this verse 24 shows us is the ending. The word of God increasing. The family of God multiplying. As the mission in verse 25 goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And now through Barnabas and Saul and John Mark. It's going to go out to the rest of the civilized world. This is the long game of God's grace. We read chapter after chapter of the book of Acts and believe that the story of our own lives and mission should like unfold in minutes, like reading Acts 12 takes just a few minutes. But we know that's not the case. But as long as the long game of God's grace may feel, the ending is certain the glory of God will be revealed. Both in judgment against sinners who live in the pride of their own glory and in the grace of God for humbled sinners who want to be covered in the robes of their king. This week, two deaths of notable pastors in our evangelical world and in our denomination happened. And I had this interesting experience of reading in contrast both reports of their death. The first one that I read about a man's ending surprised me and actually saddened me. Because it seemed so based on man's glory. He was a pastor who took a church of 28 and transformed it into three years into a church of 3,000 He took another church of 40 people and grew it into a church of 4,000. I don't think that's what this man wanted his legacy to be written about him. But in our culture and in our world, it's what we believe to be the best ending. Look what that guy did. Money, success, gain, acclaim, size. Wow. But another man, who I will miss greatly on on his deathbed, had a very different legacy to leave. And it was recounted by his son. Over the past few days, Dad has asked us to pray with him often. He's expressed many times through prayer his desire to go home to be with Jesus. In prayer, he said, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. That story ends far better than it started, doesn't it? doesn't end with big churches. It ends with Jesus, the king and the conqueror, the lion who became the lamb. 
whose robes could fill the entire world. But he doesn't beg us to bow before him in order that we could get food, like Herod did. He instead makes himself the food so that we could eat and never get hungry again. I can't wait to see Jesus who welcomes us to be part of an ending far better than any of our stories could have started. The one who delivered us from evil. For yours, Jesus, not Herod's, and never ours, is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And yours is the glory forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.